This is Trepwire Week in Review for week ending August 5th, 2022. I'm Martha Kocher with Trep, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS commercial real estate and CLO markets. I'm with Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Lonnie Henry, Head of CRE and Advisory Services. And joining us today is Stephen Bushbaum, TREP Research Director. This week, another batch of corporate earnings show resilience in the travel and real estate sectors, and several Federal Reserve governors push back on the notion of rate cuts until inflation recedes. In economic data, U.S. factory growth slowed last month, but services unexpectedly picked up. The number of job openings declined in June and jobless claims rose slightly last week, but were in line with expectations. And we'll see what the monthly jobs reports yields tomorrow. Manis, it's the dog days of summer and the markets are looking for direction. We spoke last week about the markets becoming somewhat complacent. Equities had been up, treasuries had been down, the tone of the market had been stronger. And I think fast forward ahead seven more days, and I think that we've seen more of that. Um, the market is telling us, at least from its behavior, that the worst is behind us. Equities are up. It was a terrific week for tech stocks. Earnings generally have beaten expectations and have been largely better than the worst case predictions uh, of many analysts who are expecting the sky to be falling as a result of supply chain issues, inventory problems, inflation, higher wages, and so forth. Treasury yields are, are still well below their peak levels. The 10-year was about 270 or below today, and, and rates were falling again today. So we're still well below the worst-case scenario there. And 30-year mortgages are now back below 5%. So the consensus, if you will, is that the worst is behind us. Do I agree with that? I'm not really sure. I didn't believe in June that the sky was falling when people were predicting $150 oil. I believe that we'd be able to muddle through with a recession that was not incredibly severe. But now we've gone 180 degrees the other way. And I don't believe that it's full speed ahead either. But, you know, I don't believe that now a risk on position is necessarily the most prudent thing. I do believe that we'll see more bad news economically and geopolitically. I do think that there will be more turbulence between now and the end of the year in the equity in the and the credit markets. Uh, but I do still believe that the trough ultimately will be shallow. I just don't believe that we've seen a bottom yet. Lots of layoffs, lots of hiring freezes, and lots of office consolidation tell me that there's a lot of noise out there and probably room for another leg lower. Yeah, it's interesting, man. It's, it's almost like Things have kind of been brushed to the side, but not necessarily dealt with. So you mentioned the office, you mentioned some of the layoffs and some of these other things like they're there, but they haven't necessarily shown up yet in some of the numbers. They haven't necessarily slowed down the markets. And so a couple of bullet points uh, for this week, uh, the U.S. services industry unexpectedly picked up in July as new orders grew solidly. Uh, this helped support views that the economy was not in a recession, despite output slumping in the first half. So that's a positive thing. If you look at some of the negative stuff, higher prices are driving up household debt. So there were some articles this week, U.S. household debt increased to a record $16.15 trillion in the second quarter, driven mostly by a $207 billion jump in mortgage balances. But interestingly, credit card and auto loan debt is also rising. So if you start tracking those things as kind of ancillary components to the market, in 2007, 2008, we saw a huge balloon in credit card and auto loan debt. Uh, subprime lending wasn't just limited to CRE or to residential, and we're starting to see that now. 
Americans took on an extra $46 billion on their credit cards during the second quarter, the sharpest increase in more than 20 years. That was according to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And you mentioned the mortgage rates are still high, but they did see a drop, according to Mortgage Bankers Association. And then the interesting thing for me, and we've talked about this over the last couple of months, is you know, consumer sentiment will really start to shift when people start losing their jobs or start being laid off. We started, you know, compiling some some data and talking about that week over week. But this week, it looks like uh, job openings declined by more than 600,000 in June um, and are now 10% below their March peak as companies really start to rein in their hiring plans. And Walmart was one of the headlines this week, uh, latest company to cut jobs. So they uh, warned last week of falling profit and, um, you know, some challenges that they were facing at the retail level. They actually announced they're eliminating 200 corporate positions. And then I think there was uh, one more here. Robinhood, the stock trading app, said they were cutting about 23% of its workforce, uh, which was, you know, in addition to the 9% they laid off three months ago. So, you know, potentially some storm clouds out there or some things that just haven't necessarily shown up as a slowdown yet, but potentially, you know, will show up here in the, in the near term. One of the things I look at all the time is, or several things, store closings, layoffs, corporate restructurings, uh, office closings, et cetera. And one of the things that popped up on my radar this week, which was Geico closing all 38 offices in California. And when you see something like that, sometimes in the insurance business, it has something more to do with regulation than economic conditions. But if this is purely a cost-cutting measure, I have to say, Doggone it, get rid of some of those gecko commercials. I mean, they're just overwhelming uh, at, at, at this point, right? Don't, don't close like offices the in California, right? Reduce the number of, of ads. I mean, any one time, Geico must have four campaigns going at once, right? They have the gecko, they had the caveman for a while, save 15% in 15 minutes, all these different campaigns. Enough. Bring back the beer ads. Well, I think, you know, Progressive is taking over the top spot now because they have three or four different campaigns running. And if you watch NFL football on Sundays, I mean, every other commercial is a Progressive ad, it seems like. So, yeah, I'm with you on that. Let's let's tamp down the marketing expense maybe before we start shutting offices down. And, and don't get me started on that Liberty Mutual emu. Oh. That's, that's another <laughs> one, which is just, please, enough is enough. It's below the emo and gecko going Although the the uh, the Liberty Mutual, they at least drive a 1970s model Dodge Dart. So as a car nerd, I do kind of like that part of the commercial. Let me turn briefly to to a couple of other things that talk about the market coming back that are more relevant to the CRE market. Um, in the CMBS issuance side, I was looking at that today. We had talked about a month ago about how following the June CPI hyper high number and the equally alarming July number, there had been a tightening of credit conditions and we had seen a slowing of issuance. We've seen a little bit of loosening of that. Right now we have two conduit deals in the market totaling about 1.8 billion, both have decent size to them. So it just goes to show that um, that particular pipe is still flowing. There are several SASB deals, uh, single asset, single borrower deals in the market and lastly, we saw a handful of uh, CRE CLOs come in and, and tapes being dropped off uh, with our bond modeling team as new issuance starts to pick up there again. So, you know, where we go from here, I don't know. Is that a sign of complacency? 
or will the people who are confident be right? Right? Is this we we've reached that inflection point, and the inflection point is is a positive one in terms of of the market resuming its growth from 2021. Only time will tell. So there are a number of earnings this week that were travel re related, and uh, we're going to actually talk uh, in a little bit more detail about some REIT earnings. But let's first cover some of the hotel sector earnings. Yeah, so I'll uh, I'll highlight two earnings that caught our eye this week. One was the MGM Resorts uh, casino operator shares. They gained two and a half percent off hours uh, after they reported revenue soared forty four percent in the second quarter. Really led by surging business and travel activity in Las Vegas. As our listeners know, we were out there not too long ago for ICSC. We were out there for SF Vegas a couple of weeks ago as well. So we know the conference scene has been really positively impacted year over year. So it's good to see, you know, Vegas market picking back up. The, the revenues for MGM seem to uh, support that as well. We can then look at uh, Marriott International. They issued a beat and raise second quarter earnings report. The revenue climbed nearly 70% year over year. They reported about 5.34 billion. Uh, Revpar was 70.6% higher system-wide with a jump of almost 88% international markets. You know, this hotel performance in this earnings season has really been extraordinary. Um, I didn't go into the same level of depth as you, Lonnie, but, you know, just running down the list of what I peaked at, Diamond Rock Hospitality, uh, beat on earnings, uh, Sunstone Hotel, beat, Xenia Hotels and Resorts, beat, Ashford Hospitality, uh, surpassed expectations. Host Hotels not only beat, but they said RevPAR for July 2022 was, a below, was above July 2019, and they're seeing signs of progress in San Francisco and New York, uh, which we know, along with Chicago, are three of the worst performing markets in terms of getting business travelers to come back. So that would underscore some of that confidence that we talked about earlier in the podcast. If these guys are really seeing the strong numbers that they're reporting, and they must be right, the numbers are the numbers, um, it is a sign that you know the U.S. economy is strong, that consumer is spending, people are traveling, and hotels are recovering. Yeah, one interesting thing that I think that we'll see as time plays out is business travels come roaring back out of the pandemic, and that's evidenced here. But one thing we've noticed just anecdotally within our company is the cost of travel is up significantly as well. So I think we outlined last week, airfares were up 34%. Um, hotel costs are up significantly as well. So, you know, my question looking you know out maybe three, six, nine months is, do businesses continue that push into those face-to-face -face meetings with these continually increasing costs, or do we revert back to maybe more of a virtual sales environment or virtual, you know, relationship environment for some of this business travel? So I think a lot of these numbers have really been amplified by the resurgence of the business traveler. But I can tell you, having been in the airport for the last couple of weeks, you know, air travel is so delayed at this point, and the costs are significantly higher. Do the business travelers, you know, push back a little bit and say, we're going to stop going to the hotels, we're going to stop flying out for face-to-face -face meetings, and we're going to revert back to a more virtual environment? It's time for you, Lonnie, to give up that, you know, four-room suite that they had in the hangover with the <laughs> with the Bengal and Mike Tyson when you go out to Las Vegas. You know, I think <laughs> we got to reel you in, dude. Yeah, uh, no tigers have ever been in my room, and uh, I haven't found that four-room suite yet. So when I do, I'll let you know that we can, uh, we can have a trip bash. So you mentioned a couple of wreaths, Manis, in your rundown, and Stephen 
who's joined us today, is going to talk about REIT earnings. And they've had a very robust second quarter earnings season with some strong fundamentals. And we're going to walk through a couple of the sectors. And Stephen, what have you seen? Just echoing what Mana said, beat, beat, beat. On the office front, Cousins, Alexandria, Boston Properties, SL Green, and Highwood all beat consensus estimates for funds from operations, or FFO. For Cousins, we had a little bit of a mixed signal there. While they were beating estimates, their same property revenue did decline by 1.6%, and NOI decreased marginally, but that was helped out by an expense reduction of 4.1%. The negative headline really came in the form of a downward revision to full year 2022 FFO guidance, where they had a downward revision of three to five cents per share. Moving on to Alexandria, their adjusted funds from operations came at $2.10 a share. That's up 8% year over year. And total revenue is up a staggering 26% year over year. Their 33.9% increase in runner rates on a cash basis is the highest quarterly increase in history. And leasing activity was the third highest that they ever recorded. So this was really driven by the strong leasing activity reflects demand for high quality office and lab space, which we talked about previously in the pod. Boston properties, again, another positive story. FFO was up 12% year over year. Revenue was up marginally, came in above estimates, up only 4.3% year over year. But NOI, again, helped out by some expense reductions. That was up 10.4%. SL Green, they had a little bit of a mixed message, but mostly positive. Their FFO was up 16% year over year. And net revenue missed estimates, and it was down 16.5% on a year-over-year basis. But same property NOI increased 6.7% year-over-year. On to Highwood Properties, they were up 7.5% on their funds from operations year-over-year. Revenue was up 10%. So some really strong numbers from the office sector that we might not have expected if we're just making a guess with our crystal ball about two months ago. The one that really got me this week. And I I should caveat this a little bit. I don't listen to earnings comments. I read the transcripts, normally speaking. So sometimes you lose some of the the nuance that somebody is talking about when they do this. But the one that got me, if I heard it correctly, was from, or read it correctly, was from Vornado, uh, which is mostly office, but also has some retail, street-level retail, which can dominate big parts of their portfolio. they had a couple of thoughts out there. One is they expected earnings to drop in the second half of 2022. But the one remark that really got me was from Glenn Weiss, uh, who is one of their executives. And he said, in 2023, they have 1.3 million square feet expiring in Manhattan. And the, the quote he said was, as it relates to the, the 1 million square feet that are not in Penn Station, He said, we probably expect a 50-50 split of people staying versus leaving. Now, again, maybe if I had listened to that, the tone of that may have sounded different. But what I was hearing there was they're expecting a 50% renewal rate in Manhattan for the stuff that's expiring in 2023. I'd love to hear other listeners' reaction to that, or even Bornado themselves, uh, if that was an unintended uh, indicator. But it just kind of underscores just how opaque the downtown central business district market is in the Northeast and the upper Midwest right now. It's really hard to get any visibility there uh, in the near term. 
Yeah, you would have to assume pre-pandemic that they were underwriting those lease rollovers with about 85 or 90% chance of, of renewal. And if they're at 50% now, that's a pretty significant reduction. I would always find when I would read these transcripts, they would have a million or 2 million square feet, you know, in their, in their role, but they would say only 90,000 square feet remains unaccounted for that. We're not sure what's going to happen. And that's to your point, Lonnie, that the numbers were historically huge. And, and if this is true, it's 50, 50. And if that is what SL green is seeing and Boston properties in their uh, New York and San Francisco and, and, and other big urban areas, that would be concerning. You know, one of the things, Stephen, that you pointed out on Cousins that I thought was really interesting is they said the Sunbelt only represented about 20%, 26% of their portfolio, but accounted for 58% of new-to-market leasing in 21, which just kind of fits in the narrative that we've seen of offices relocating to the Sunbelt states. The other thing, their CEO was quoted as saying, over the past few quarters, buildings built since 2015 accounted for 62 million square feet of national net absorption. On the flip side, buildings built before 2000 accounted for negative net absorption of over 100 million square feet. So we've talked about that at length here on the podcast that you have this bifurcation in the market between super high-end class A new construction buildings and, and everything else. And I think he you know, articulates that with a very concise quote of anything 15 and newer, pretty positive message. But on a relative basis, it's small compared to all those older buildings in stock when net absorption has been negative to the tune of 100 million square feet. So, you know, it, it sounds like they're at least acknowledging some sort of bifurcation from the data that they're seeing as well. That's right. It kind of resonates similar to some of the su supply chain constraints we've all felt or frustrations, really, I should say, and that we've seen some tenants be reluctant to give up that space or downsize in some of these top tier high quality buildings. Because if you really do need those face-to-face -face meetings and you need quality facilities, trying to get back in the, into them with minimal supply is gonna be difficult in the near term. So while we are on the topic of office, let's roll into office transactions, number of sales uh, and leasing transactions. I don't have a whole lot this week and our audience may be think I'm giving them mercy. I don't know that, you know, we've had so many office stories of late that maybe uh, a short roster this week will give people some, uh, some relief, but here we go in the crabgrass category. This is from Savannah Sicurella of the Atlantic Atlanta business chronicle uh, in Midtown Atlanta, Atlantic yards sold for $385 million. That's $734 a square foot. Why did this one catch my attention? Well, for several reasons. The first is that early indications for the market were that this was going to attend a per square foot price of $900. So this is a sizable discount from what people were thinking this might go for. This particular building is fully leased to Microsoft. It's on a lease that I believe runs until 2035. So what you're saying here is when when prices fall in commercial real estate, it could be from one of several factors. Factor number one is you're discounting cash flows in the future back at a higher rate. Uh, issue number two is the tenant becomes less credit worthy. You're worried about the tenant uh, replacing there or market conditions change. And you think that you know when this lease is up, you may have to have a different rent per square foot, which isn't as favorable 
going forward. In this particular case, the tenant is incredibly credit worthy. It's Microsoft and the lease is locked up for more than a decade. So the only thing that has changed here is the rate at which you're discounting cash flows back, right? And this is a reflection of people paying less for the same cash flow than they might have six months ago or a year. So, so that's, that, that's the reason that one jumped out at me. In New York, this is from Pat Ralph of The Real Deal, 43 East 53rd Street in Manhattan East. That sold for 15% less than it did in 2015. The property is a 134,000 square foot property spanning 20 floors. And to close it out on a somewhat higher note in Stanford, Connecticut, Franklin Templeton has renewed at First Stanford Place. That property backs $164 million CMBS loan. Um, you might recall Franklin Templeton bought Leg Mason a couple of years ago. The lease is still in Leg Mason's name. The, the upside is Franklin Templeton has renewed for several years, in fact, to 2035. Uh, the downside is that it looks like they are reducing their square footage from about 140,000 square feet to about 80,000 square feet. So I guess call that one a mixed green. Yeah, let me jump back in on the uh, the Atlantic Yards uh, story, Manis, that you talked about, because I think you make a very compelling point there in terms of, you know, discounting the cash flows back at a higher rate at this point, lowering the value. For all the reasons you outlined, Microsoft being the tenant, the long-term nature of this lease, those are all really strong uh, components that should lead to a higher sales price. You see these properties generally trade at a premium to regular market properties for those reasons. The fact that this property sold for, you know, a hundred plus dollars a square foot less than estimates actually resets the market at large, because now if you're a second tier building or you don't have a long-term tenant in place, that's credit worthy. And you thought maybe you were worth 700 a foot, you know, six months ago, you're probably trading that $500 square foot range at this point, because this sets the high watermark for those reasons. Uh, so there's some downstream impact based off of those types of transactions. And I think it's a pretty good you know, measure of where we're at in the cycle, because generally speaking, these are the high watermarks in, in those markets for the reasons we've outlined. And this probably indicates a, a broader macro slowdown of the uh, the market. And the sellers here were Heinz and Invesco. Uh, so these are folks that are in the market across the US and across the globe, actually. Uh, so in terms of having their hand on the pulse of the market, you know, they're that's their business. And so for them to think they're going to get 900 and get 730, but still transact, tells you what they think about the long-term prospects of that sector. Yeah, smart guys on either side of the table, Heinz and Invesco on one side and KKR. I think KKR was the seller. So uh, some heavy hitters on both sides of the table there. Just to close out the office sector, Collier's put out their report that said office leasing in Manhattan has rebounded in 2022. The activity hit 3.16 million square feet in July and was the strongest monthly leasing since January of 2020. So that's up 42.8% over June and 34.4 year over year. So New York continues to come back, I think, from bad place originally. So let's talk a little bit more about the REIT sector and shift into multifamily. And there were a bunch of earnings calls in that group. That's right. And to sum it up, residential is on fire. When you look at the year-over-year -year funds from operations, revenue growth, just across the board, overwhelmingly positive. 
And if you're like me and been looking at rentals recently in the New York market, to touch back on the New York office comment, you feel it in the rents. They're in the bottom line as well. So American campus communities, positive. They beat consensus estimates and had revenue up 17.8% year over year. Mid-America apartment communities, also positive. They beat consensus estimates with FFO up 19.5% year over year and also increased its 2022 full year outlook for FFO growth. They noted that same property effective rent per unit really drove results with total revenue up 13.3% year over year. Per the CEO, leasing conditions remain robust across Sunbelt markets and higher cost for single family housing fuels a growing demand for apartment housing. So I'll get back to that in just a little bit. We talk about the rent CPI report that we have coming up later this week. Moving on to invitation homes, again, another strong positive. They had FFO up 13.5% year over year. Revenues up similarly 13.4% year over year. Equity residential, this one's a strong one. Funds from operations up 23.6% year over year. On the property level metrics, same property revenue was up 13.6%. Expenses surprisingly only grew at 3.1%, leaving NOI to surge by 19.1% year over year. On to Avalon Bay communities, another very strong post on FFO up 22.7% year over year with total revenue up 14.7%. Same property metrics, revenue up 12.9%. Expenses up 4.8, and NOI, again, surged 19% year over year. They also issued a 2 to 2.5% upward revision to same property rental growth from 8 and a quarter to 9 and 3 quarters originally to now 10 and 3 quarters to 11 and 3 quarters percent. The first one that you, you threw out there, American Campus, that was one of you know the segments of the market, that student housing, that it just has really defied expectations. Maybe it hasn't for you. Stephen had been a professor down in Texas. Lonnie is an adjunct professor in, in Texas. And, you know, maybe I just underestimated the, the, the allure of you guys. Like you're just drawing these guys back into campus, filling those dorms. And, you know, I, I was giving you guys uh, not enough credit, but really one of the most resilient and surprising parts of the COVID-19 story. I thought those places would be you know, ter be turned into paintball operations. I I've said this before on this podcast that, you know, my wife and I, we traded our house for a condo and now I wish we had traded it for student housing. I mean, the quality of living in those places is is light years above where we, uh, where we are. Well, you know, Manus, if you move to Utah, the University of Utah has a shortage of campus housing. And so anything that's in the 25 mile radius of the school campus, you can sign up to house a student and you get $5,000 to do that. So you know what? I think it might be uh, in the cards. And you don't even have to walk down the hallway to get to the shower, <laughs> right? Every guy has got his own shower, <laughs> right? Or gal or whatever, you know, it's, uh, you know, out. those days of, uh, you know, getting your shower shoes on and, and hoping it all works out, you know, that's over. Exactly. I, you know, when, when uh, Stephen was going through that rundown, remember, remember Lonnie a few weeks ago when we felt we needed like a whiteboard or a spreadsheet or something to track when Manus was going through some of those, I felt the same way when Stephen was going through the financials of uh, a dozen or so of these REITs. I was like, oh my God, I got to write this down. We should have told people to take a pencil and write this down. 
What's crazy if you if you go back and look at the numbers he quoted out. I mean, the things that jumped out at me. And Manis, you and I talked about this, and I, you actually put out a, a report about this, looking at NOI change year over year and how we thought that would be negatively impacted for multifamily because of higher expenses. Um, and in this example that Stephen went through on these uh, these REITs, revenues up, you know, call it thirteen to fifteen percent on average. Expenses only up three to four percent. And you get down to the bottom line, NOI growth around 19% year over year, really, really incredible. Um, it just, it makes you wonder how sustainable that is into the future. I mean, interest rates are obviously going to impact that into the future. They probably don't show up in these numbers yet. A lot of these are probably financed with, you know, fairly longer term fixed rate financing because they're multifamily. So they don't have that brunt, you know, from the floating rate stuff that maybe some of the other property types do. But it'll be interesting. I mean, 19% year-over-year NOI growth, even if cap rates don't don't explode or compress, they just stay flat, you're still talking about huge increases in property valuations. And so it'll be interesting as we, we go through the multifamily segment. Sales prices on multifamily, I think, are still going to be uh, surprisingly high on a relative basis to these other asset classes because of the type of growth these have, have showcased over the last couple of quarters. You know, Lonnie, just to follow up on that comment about extending the, the duration on that fixed rate debt, there was a nice piece from NARI that talked about you know, basically just how resilient REITs are right now. And so we've seen a lack of equity and debt issuance by and large, but their point was that low level in 2022 is in part due to the fact that well, REITs have the flexibility and balance sheet strength, so they don't need to issue costly equity or debt. And then just to that point, one more uh, metric that jumped out was if you look at the weighted average term to maturity for REIT debt from 2000 to 2022, it's extended out to the longest we've ever seen over that timeline. It's up to almost 90 months between 80 and 90. So one of the trends that has come up again and again in this conversation is that sun belt is up and selective markets are, are struggling or down. So in the comments from the most recent Bureau of Labor Statistics report in July, so that was covering the June year-over-year numbers, nationally rents increased by 5.8%. So the BLS noted that this was a major factor playing into that strikingly high 9.1% inflation rate. So what I decided to do was dig through the numbers a little bit more to see what kind of variation there was across markets, and then see how that stacked up relative to what we saw in the 2021 year in financials for Conduit and Freddie Mac loans. So Phoenix, according to the BLS statistics, comes at the top at 14.7% year-over-year rental growth. And if you stretch that back to 18 months, that comes out to an annual average growth rate of 11%, really strong. At the opposite end of the spectrum, you have San Francisco that has had just been ripe with problems politically, quality of life, social issues. They posted a dismal 1.3% increase in year-over-year -year rental growth in June, and it drops to 0.5% on an annual basis over the last 18 months. When we're talking about bifurcated markets, you see this really stick out if you compare, say, the top four growth markets with the bottom six. So the top four growth markets are all in the Sun Belt and had revenue and NOI growth in the mid to high single digits. 
And they also had across the board the top rankings for loan performance as measured by the percent of loans that were delinquent on the special services watch list or had a debt coverage ratio less than 1.0. So the property wasn't generating enough cash flow to cover the debt. Then if we turn to the opposite in the bottom six metros by rent growth, all saw NOI decline by an average of half a percent or 50 basis points, right? That's, that's a really kind of shocking thing when you think about the kind of growth we've seen through inflation across the board for markets to come in with negative NOI growth. But something that took me by surprise, back to the, the note on expenses, 15 of the 19 metros I looked at as of year end 2021 had expenses, that expense growth outpaced revenue growth. So I don't want to give away too much of the report, but we do a lot more breakdowns of the statistics looking at bifurcation within metros. So the high rent versus low rent properties and what the growth looks like and found some really interesting statistics that stuck out that I think will provide for an interesting narrative or at least things to watch for as we go into the second half of this year. And that's a reminder that if you're not on our list of people who get our blogs, this will be coming out soon. And if you'd like to get a copy of this, please reach out to podcast.trep.com or Haley Keen, our producer here, and we'll make sure that you're added to this list. Some really interesting things in there. And as we've said all all along, uh, there are winners and losers coming out of COVID. and, And this really underscores that point. You know, one takeaway for me on this is the San Francisco numbers. If you couple all of the negativity around San Francisco, whether it be retail, uh, office, now multifamily showing really negative results. We haven't necessarily seen that translate into lower property valuations or lower sales transaction prices. But as Stephen mentioned, there's some fundamental challenges there that they still haven't dealt with. So I wonder like at what point, you know, office occupancy, I think there was a story a couple of weeks ago, either in the journal or Bloomberg that was saying, been, they've been the leading market for sublease space since the inception of the pandemic. Um, now they're starting to field in multifamily. At what point do they hit that inflection point where you actually start seeing some price reductions? I don't know when that is. You know, I think long-term investors are still bullish on San Francisco, but if this was any other market and those fundamentals were in play, I think you would have already seen a fairly sharp decline in pricing and they've actually been able to withstand that to this point. So we've uh, wrapped up our CMBS delinquency report and put it out. What do the numbers show? We Remember we had the question, was it an inflection point last month or not? Well, if we're going to tie together this entire podcast thematically, right, we've talked about how the markets were up on the equity side, treasuries remain range-bound, confidence is up uh, with Stephen's reports. You know, re-earnings have really been extraordinary. Uh, NOI growth up really kind of across the across the board in, in terms of property segment. So the delinquency report will be of a piece to those other sentiments that we've thrown out there thus far. Um, after a an uptick, a, a modest uptick in June, the CMD, CMBS delinquency rate uh, fell again in July by 14 basis points. So even after the uptick in June, the July rate is back to being below where it was in May. The rate has now fallen in 23 of, of the last 25 months. The 3.06% rate this month is a new post-COVID-19 low. Uh, by property type, we saw improvements really across the board. 
small improvement in industrial, 34 basis point improvement in lodging. Um, we just continue to see enormous amounts of uh, cures, loan reinstatements and payoffs in the lodging sector. Uh, multifamily, it has rock bottom delinquencies to begin with, but that delinquency rate improved again in July. Offices, right, it, it's kind of ground zero for what people are thinking will be the worst performer going forward. Uh, its delinquency rate fell six basis points and retail came down 12 basis points. So really across all segments of the market, July was pretty good. And I think that's a positive sign, right? We are now six months pretty much since the spike in oil prices, six months since the beginning of the war in the Ukraine, three or four months since the 10-year treasury breached 3%. So, you know, all these numbers that we're seeing now, whether it's in property sales or, or delinquency, really should reflect a lot of the bad news we've seen thus far. The only thing that would not be reflected thus far is probably that, you know, June and July, real high CPI numbers, which may not kind of flow through to the impact on how things are selling uh, until later in August and September. But um, the fact that we've weathered a lot of this, I guess, kind of buoys the, the argument for those that are really upbeat on where we're going as an economy. Yeah, I think this is definitely a positive sign for the market. Uh, retail back to where it was in May after a slight uptick, you know, multifamily less than 1%, which first time it's been less than 1% in a while. Uh, overall, this has to bode well for the the you know state of the CRE marketplace. It's interesting, though, because I think if any of us were looking at all the things you just outlined, Manus, in terms of the geopolitical and the, the macroeconomic factors, we probably would have assumed there'd be more distress in the market, and we just haven't necessarily seen that yet. So, you know, I'm optimistic and hoping that maybe this is just a very shallow dip and we're back back at it. But there's been a lot of things happen that should have triggered some additional distress that just don't show up in the numbers at this point. So, you know, office for me is the one that just stands out. It's it's sub 2% with all the negative headlines, with all the downsizing, with all the stuff that we cover every week, they keep, st they keep paying the mortgage, which is just great news. So, you know, for all of the detractors on the office market into the future, the data to this point through COVID, post COVID, you know, through some of these macro factors that we've outlined, uh, they've been very resilient. And I think that's a really positive sign for them looking into the future from a financial perspective. Now we can argue work from home, et cetera, et cetera. But at least right now, uh, we track a lot of office properties. The performance has been very, very resilient. Just to tease something out up there, you know, the, the office day of reckoning will come when these things have reached their balloon dates, right? We won't see a lot of term defaults unless they lose you know, 50% of their tenant base or, or something like that, which can happen. Uh, we've seen that in the past in Houston and, and other places. But the day of reckoning will come just like it did with malls when they reach their balloon date. And to that point, one of our analysts, one of our crack uh, researchers, Jack LaForge, is putting out a piece next week, which talks about the biggest loans that are maturing in the next six months. Uh, and it will itemize things by property type. So uh, look for that next week as well. And as you know, we were talking about the CRE sentiment survey. We had a number of, actually a record number of folks fill out the survey this year. We'll actually dive into the details of that survey next week on the podcast, as well as uh, release the report so you can see the details behind it. 
But office obviously bubbled up as an area of concern for distress, for rents, for occupancy. Um, and it is definitely, you know, one of the property sectors that uh, there's a lot of concern on for the next six months and year to come. Yeah, by far office was the biggest concern of our respondents. And by the way, uh, a big thank you to everybody from the podcast listening community that took part in this survey. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of respondents across all segments, brokers, fixed income lenders, property owners, uh, leasing brokers, a real litany of um, professional service types that participated in this. I, I will tease a couple of things and we'll give more of that next week. More than half of the respondents said that economic conditions would would impact their business negatively over the next six months. Not by a huge margin, maybe it was 55, 56%, something like that. But it was a majority said that the current conditions would have a negative impact. But at the same time, about 60% said in the current environment, their company is still flat, growing modestly, or growing considerably. So it's almost like they expect things to get considerably worse, but they haven't yet. And their, and their own individual uh, experiences have generally been positive. That was one nuance that you'll see in the report. And, and the other thing, which was really um, in stark contrast to the delinquency numbers we just saw a moment ago, by a factor of more than 10 to 1, people felt that delinquencies would be higher six months from now than they are today. So a couple of little thoughts that you'll see out there. Really like to thank our analyst team have worked to get the survey out and collect the data. It's, it's really interesting stuff, and we hope you enjoy it more on this subject matter next week. Programming note, our European team will be covering the European news next week. So that will be dropping, I believe, early next week. Haley, does that sound about right? Yes, she's nodding from behind the glass. So I know we've had a, a couple of uh, investors from other faraway lands that often uh, comment on the pod. So tune into that next week. I think it'll it'll be stuff that you'll be interested in. Some shout outs. Anne L uh, sent us a couple of uh, interesting stories. I think uh, we forwarded them on to the European pod team. They're going to include them in the podcast. Matt, uh, aka Oz, he attached an email with thoughts on cap rates. He said, kudos to Lonnie. He didn't call you Lonnie Lugnut. So I'm not sure we might need to tell him your nickname for bringing up the concept that's not talked about enough when reporting on cap rates. It's critical to understand what NOI we are capping. So uh, good job there. Uh, Adam W. requested the modification document that we offered and he sent a note. He says, I want to thank you for the time and effort to create such a content rich podcast and consistently for nearly 150 weeks. So if you haven't paid attention this is our 150th podcast. I don't know if there's actually someone who's listened to 150 hours of us talking about CRE and CMBS. If we have, we apologize. Well, I joke that that's, you know, the new form of, you know, breaking down, you know, hardened criminals in prison, right? You make them listen to 150 hours of the, the TREP podcast, right? It's, it's the nonviolent form of waterboarding. But you know, I, I don't have as much gray matter as Martha or Lonnie or, or Stephen, but uh, they probably know this already. It's probably something that they roll out at cocktail parties. You know, the 150th anniversary of anything is the sesquicentennial. Wow. 
Did well, you I know that? I, I don't I know where that Stephen there. Stephen is nodding along knowingly, and uh, Lonnie's giving me the thumbs up. I, I could see them rolling that out on the single scene, you know, 15 or 20 years ago when they were, you know, trying to impress people, you know, at the, the cocktail circuit. But yes, sesquicentennial. That's, that's impressive. There I mean, I'm go. not a Gen Zer, but I don't think we're that old yet, Manus. There we go. And I believe when I uh, rolled that out, I had to go back to my luxury campus community apartment by myself. <laughs> <laughs> it, it didn't play well in uh, in Athens. Shockingly, no, no, it did not. Black Eagle Deborah, as always, interesting and insightful podcast, and she made some comments on the multifamily cap rate comments. Dan M said he, we had him cracking up on the last episode, so that must have been you guys because I was uh, I was at the beach, so I don't know what you said, but uh, he found it funny, and it and it seems that he was listening to the podcast at eleven thirty on a Saturday night, which is, dude, you need a hobby. You know what he did? He went out that night and he use that term sesquicentennial and that just ended his evening right <laughs> he was expected to be out there over. doing karaoke doing the whoop 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 you know the whole thing and he throws out that term and it's all over and rachel from tampa commented on the residential commentary that we had a couple weeks uh, a couple weeks ago when we were talking about the residential market and she made some really good points and asked a couple provocative questions are regulators trying to scare the market into slowing it down and is it working? And, you know, you got to wonder sometimes. Well, I think they're towing that line. Lonnie said that a couple of weeks ago, right? They want to, you know, it's like, it's like being a parent, right? You want to scare your kids a little bit. You don't want to scare them so much that, you know, they hide under the bed for the rest of their life. And it's always towing that line. And it's the same thing with investors, right? You want to take out the exuberance, but you don't want to trigger a depression. And, uh, you know, one week or one day, it's a guy talking a positive spin, and the next day it's it's a cautious spin, and that's that's the world we live in. So speaking of spin, I don't know if you know this, but the Earth is actually spinning faster than it ever has. I could tell. <laughs> and to make matters worse, I mean, we've got a lot to think about these days between with inflation and war and geopolitics, but apparently it's shaved about 1.59 milliseconds from the average day. So, you know, if I get to choose, you know, the second that gets shaved, I'm going to choose not happy hour and not when I'm sleeping. Well, I could tell when I'm watching you guys on Zoom on the podcast, you look like the people that are dubbed in those Godzilla movies. Like when Martha's talking, it seems like your lips are moving like a half second behind, um, you know, you know what's actually being said. So uh, I buy it. I think, you know, I can only hope that you know, the, the fact that it's spinning faster is, you know, going to help us look slimmer. Does this make us older or younger? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I, think, I think it's older. That's what I thought. And I'm afraid of that. Yeah, I we're already aging. Yeah. We're gonna Does have it change have... when you uh, celebrate a sesquicentennial? <laughs> You're going to need a leap second, a negative leap second to make up for that. And with that, we, we will close. Thanks to our producer who we can't rattle. Haley Keene. Join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question or a comment, send your email to podcast at trep.com and subscribe to the podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. All right.